we all know people, or we have been those people, or maybe right now you are one of those people who wander away from God's best for you. Abram, or Abraham, had heard the word of the Lord, and he began what is the title of this series, Venturing into the Unknown with the Lord, some of the people that were with him, and one of the most notable people, probably the two most notable, are his wife Sarah, Sarai, and his nephew Lot. Here in Genesis chapter 14, about 4,000 years ago, Abraham, uh, after his miserable failure in Egypt, was trying to live for God in the promised land. And the result was of the, his various travels getting to where he is today that both he and his nephew Lot became very, very prosperous. Last week we saw that they were fighting over the land and so what happened was, or their herdsmen were, we saw Abraham and Lot parted company. Abraham said, hey, you just choose what you want. Lot chose the beautiful land near Sodom where we were told this very kind of side comment where those people in Sodom were wicked and sinful against the Lord. So he's not in Sodom, he's near Sodom. Now, when you get close to Sodom, remember we said last week, it, you get close to something, it's only so long until it's inside of you. And so he's now close to Sodom, and, and certainly that would not be God's best for him. Now, often, I won't say always, but often, uh, when people make such choices to go far from God, to wander from God, those choices have been kind of circulating around in their heart for a while. They have been making that choice for a while. There's just been no real opportunity. And I think that's the case with Lot. I think that's the case with many people. And volumes have been written as to why people make such self-destructive choices in their lives. For Lot, it's very important to remember that we know that the Lord was with Abraham, and so for Lot, leaving Abraham meant leaving the divine protection that Abraham had, and Lot is going to have to learn some very hard lessons along the way. And the same is true for us. If we wander from God, there are going to be some very, very hard lessons because he loves us. Most of us learn better through hard lessons, don't we? There's going to be some very hard lessons that the Lord is going to have to teach us. Today we will see what he thought was a great choice of picking that land and going living on the edge of Sodom was a disastrous choice. Because the result of that choice, or step one, or phase one of that choice, was to move him far from God. And many of you know this. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not, we're so glad that you're here or you're watching us online. But you know this, that, that when you were far from God, he what? Jesus Christ himself came to help you. And so the title of our message today is Coming to the Rescue. So let's pick it up, Genesis chapter, one, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of, what's his name? 
Amraphel, king of Shinar, that's actually Babylonia, Ariak, king of El- Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. Let's call them the kings of the four big superpowers. That they made, more with, they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab of Admah, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So let's call those the five little kings. So there's four big kings and five little kings. Verse 3, all these joins together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Keteliomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keteliomer, he, he appears to be the leader, and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephim at Ashtoreth, Karnaim, and Zuzim in Ham, and Emin, not Eminem, and Emin. Now, if, you know, if they know who he is, then it tells you something about them. <laughs> Shava, and I know who he is, <laughs> Shava, uh, Kiriatham, and the Horites in the mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Verse 7, then they turned back and came to En Mishpath, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazan Tamar. A lot of times, you know, we have people do scripture readings. Right now, they're like, whew, glad he didn't ask me this week. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and king of Belah, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in, in the valley of Siddim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So, got it? Some of you don't look so sure. Let's review what we just read. So years earlier... Uh, this, this guy, uh, Keterleomer, and his alliance raided the cities of the area of the Jordan, we'll call it the Promised Land area, and made these cities pay tribute. Now, we say tribute, we'd like to pay tribute to this person tonight. That's not what tribute is. Tribute is sort of like taxes paid to the nation that rules over you, and uh, often for peace and protection. Now, some of you say, that kind of sounds like the mafia. You're not that far off. You're not that far off. And this situation where they conquered them and made them pay this protection money lasted for 12 years until year 13. And in year 13, the king of Sodom and his friends said, we're not going to pay anymore. If you're older, but you still hear this stuff on when you go around places today, that old who song, we're not going to take it. They're just not going to take it anymore, and they rebelled. So in year 14, the evil emperor Ketaliomer and the federation of other evil kings, let's call them the empire, came to squash the rebellion. Some of you are like, this sounds like Star Wars. You wonder where these people get these plots from. Now, this was actually very common in the ancient world. This happened a lot. 
that you would conquer a nation and then charge them for being conquered. <laughs> Sometimes we think we have it bad. And that was often be followed by a rebellion. Now you say, why didn't they just have negotiations? Because there were no negotiations. They would have to be a rebellion. And what would happen would be, instead of the, the ruling nation saying, well, okay, we, got, we took enough money from you, typically they would come and they would swiftly come in with crushing military power to put down the rebellion, but also to make an example to other nations. To say, this, listen, if you want to mess with us, look what happened to them. And so they would ruthlessly come in and attack their, these people. So here it appears they came with unleashed fury. It sounds like they very easily rolled over these five little kings, the four major kings. Yet there's something that is unusual here that's going on behind the scenes. The big four came to fight the little five in the promised land. But what the, what the big four didn't know was, and you basketball fans know about this, that the little five kings had a sixth man. Now, if you don't know, you say, I don't follow basketball. I have no idea what that is. There's the starting five. And then once one person starts to get a little tired or needs a little break like that, they bring in a guy who is so good, or a woman who is so good, they really could be one of the starting five. But they come in to breathe new life into the team. And so it's like they didn't lose anything by taking one of their starting five out. So Abraham, the man of God, is the sixth man. Now verse 12 takes us to the shocker. And really the emphasis that we're placing on today's study they also took Lot. So the four conquering kings that have come in to squash the rebellion, they came to take Lot. They captured Lot, Abraham's nephew, Abraham's brother's son, who, look at this, dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Remember we said last week that in chapter 13 that he lived near Sodom. Now we see that he's moved. He lives in Sodom. This is sad. Yet I think it's also a good reminder to us as a church that this is a large reason why we even exist. We do want to, you know, build up God's people, make them strong in the word of God, but we also exist to help people that are far from God to help people that are trapped in sin. And most of the times, people, when they're trapped in sin, they don't even see it. Remember we always say we, we, we don't know what we don't see or we can't see what we can't see. We're blind to what we can't see. And a lot of times, people don't realize that they're caught in something until there are consequences or till they realize that it's now it's a weight on them that they cannot carry themselves anymore. That might be you today. I know that feeling all too well. We could easily say that, what, that Lot, this is what Lot gets for playing with fire. We could also talk about listening to the wrong people. And that happens a lot. People listen to the wrong people. 
or we could talk about, and this is particularly pertinent to the young people, you determine if you're young or not, uh, about what can happen when you associate with the wrong crowd. You may not be like them to start, but you are guilty sometimes by association, and eventually you may start to look more like them than who you really are. We could also say this is what happens when we stray from God and we stray from his promises. And the result was simply this. Lot lost it all. He lost it all. Perhaps we might say of these four kings or or the lifestyle that Lot was being dragged into that evil was hunting for the body of soul and souls of men and women including God's people. It's interesting, in verse 10, it says that some thought that they had escaped, but they fell into the asphalt pits. When we get to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we'll talk more about that. Others think they can escape from God, but they fall into what we know as the pit of hell. They think that they can get away from him. I guess when I think of Lot, I guess I think about a lot of people, somebody who's um, kind of following the culture, not really aware of the effect that it has on them, and then all of a sudden, life just crashes in on them. It's like the person Jesus talked about who builds their house on on the sand. Jesus said, you build your house on the rock or the sand, and the storm will come. The storm comes to everyone. It's not like you're going to be exempt from the storm. So if you build your house on the rock, the word of God, you build your house on Jesus, the storm's going to come. You probably lose a few shutters and your house gets, roof needs to be repaired or something like that. But Jesus said the person who built their house on the sand of the waves of the world, the storm came and their house collapsed and they just went down, right, the river. Their house was washed down the river. And so that's what Lot seems to me. It seems in some ways when, when he was trying to get ahead with his activities, with all of his wealth, that he fell prey to what we might call the open-mindedness of Sodom and the freedom that it promised. And now... As it all came and crashed in on him, he is now captured by the four kings. Do you think he's viewing the the freedom of Sodom as being so freeing? And that has happened to many of us. It happens to many, many people. This is a challenge for all of us. If, If you think it's not a challenge for you, then I would love to spend five minutes with you and just say, are you really that sure? As the culture of Sodom, which we'll talk about in weeks to come, is clearly overtaking our nation. It's clearly overtaking our churches. You know, you would think that in a a time that we're in right now, that the research would show that people are really hunkering down, getting stronger in their faith, trying to stay more connected, you know, reading and praying and begging God for, for, you know, mercy on our country and, and salvation of people. And yet the statistics say the exact opposite is happening. People are watching Netflix all day long. I'm not against Netflix. I have it. Parts of it I'm against. But, but, but 
the question really is, as the culture of Sodom takes over our culture, how do we feel about it? Do we find ourselves growing increasingly comfortable with it? I, I know some of you, when you hear people use profanity, it's very hard for you. People use it, and then they find out I'm a pastor, and they're like, oops. And I say, it's all right. I used to own a trucking company. I've heard that word before. There's another part of profanity that has a weird effect on me. It reminds me of who I used to be. And it also reminds me of why we do what we do. Of why Calvary Chapel, we are who we are. Because Jesus said, from out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we are to be reminded in various ways. We are reminded that we live in a very, very different culture, a very, very different world. You know, not all of culture is bad. I hate the fact now that we're so, we're so racism, you know, fragile right now that I can't, you feel like you can't say anything. Somebody brings, you know, an international dish to a, to a small group, to a community group, or to a church function, or to your house, or you would go to their house, something like that, and you're just like, man, I just love this kind of food, right? And I, there's beautiful things about culture, but there's also some negative things about culture that can drag us into great compromise, and those things are kind of like a bad smell. Did you ever smell something really, really raunchy? And really, really bad. And then you realize if you stay in it long enough that you're actually used to it. You actually get used to it. And then somebody else walks in the room and like, oh, what's that smell? Don't you smell that? And if you're honest, you're like, not anymore. And that's the way a lot of this kind of stuff is. And perhaps Lot was that way. He was not aware. And let's be honest. It's not as easy as we think or as we pretend to remain godly while we are living in the midst of an ungodly world. It's not as easy as we think to live godly and be godly and think godly in the midst of such ungodliness. It's easy to think or say that it doesn't affect us, but it does. And sadly, so many Christians are walking in Lot's footstep. Some are fully aware of it, and some are not at all. And they say, how can I be better at knowing? This is the best suggestion I could have for you. Get your nose in the Bible for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes a day and have friends who are willing to tell you the hard things or challenge you or ask you about the hard things. Not to mention in this situation, just I'm thinking about Abram for a minute. We're going to find out that he's going to find out about in a second. Uh, you know, the promises of God in the promised land were for Abraham and his descendants. And guess who his closest relative is? Lot. Lot. Abraham had no son, so it would be, they had no children, so it would be for Lot. I wonder, was sometimes Abraham thinking, Lord, 
you know, I'm, I'm old, my wife is old, we don't have any kids. Are the promises of God for Lot? I mean, is he the one? Are, are your promises for my nephew who is living such a compromised life? Well, we come to verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew... For he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Verse 14, now when Abraham heard, Abram heard that his brother, and remember Lot was his brother's son, so in a sense he is his brother. When Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, let's just stop right there. Let's just stop in the middle of that verse. So, some guy comes running, tells him what happened. Abraham, Abraham lives out in the middle of nowhere. The internet's down. There's no internet, I know. It's okay. He hasn't heard what happened. He tells him what happens. Maybe he heard that the, the armies were coming, and he said not only did they come, but they took Lot away with them. So if you're Abram, what do you do? Do you risk everything and everyone and go for Lot? Or do you say, you know what? We're going to have to let the boy reap what he's sown. And we say, boy, he's probably a fully grown man. You see, Lot selfishly thought of himself. He picked the land near Sodom. Picked the land that he thought was best and foolishly was so affected by whatever Sodom was that he moved in. You see, what did Lot do? Remember I told you in the announcement, this is a fear that I have, that, that, that Lot had isolated himself from the godly influence of Abraham. And so the godly influence was gone, and so the, the, only the ungodly influences remained you see, Abraham was not just a relative. He was not just a social friend. He was a man of God. Again, that's why I'm encouraging the joining of a, of a community group so you don't end up isolated like Lot did. Now, on the one hand, we have to think about, let's try to think through Abraham's thinking. I mean, if he should get involved and emerge victorious, although he would be greatly outnumbered, imagine the confidence of God's newly formed people. Remember, God's kind of starting all over again with Abraham and his people. Imagine how confident they would be in God. God clearly helped us in this situation. But the risk involved was huge. You see, Abraham is in one of those places where he's caught in the middle. I mean, if he goes after Lot, what is the enemy going to think of him? Not too much. And what about his own people? We're going to see there's a lot of, their group has grown to be very, very large. He has no offspring, but he's got a large, large group of people that are with him. And they're thinking, what are, kind of a decision are you making here? I mean, we all know Lot. He's a miserable good-for-nothing. Why in the world would we chase him down? 
and risk our own lives. Are, are you, they'll, they'll send all these men out to battle. Do you want us, the woman would, would be like saying to their husbands, what does he want us all to be widows? They want everybody to grow up without a daddy? He's not in a great spot. He's learning, Abraham is learning an important lesson of leadership. That the tough choices of leadership, and some of you are there, you're a leader at the church, you're a leader in, in, your, in your business, you're a leader in your home. The, the tough choices that a leader has to make, and will, they will have to be made, will often get some or many people mad at you. And the hardest part of it probably is, sadly enough, that most people assume instead of asking. Most people believe the first person who talks to them and thinks that they have all of the facts. And if you're taking notes, you might want to jot down Proverbs 18, 17 that specifically tells you not to do that. God says, don't do that. Proverbs 18, 17. You will, you will end up in a bad place. You see, nobody would know about all the time that Abraham had spent trying to help Lot. Perhaps they spent a lot of time together where Lot was sort of had his own bent and, and Abraham was trying to, to get him to come to the things of God. And so what would the criticism of the people being that were with Abraham be? Oh, you'd have the rebellious camp over here. Some people would say, well, Lot, he's just rebellious. Other people would say, oh, no, 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 Lot's a victim. He lost his father early on. He, now he's been captured. He got sucked into the lifestyle of Sodom. So what would you do? Would you help him or not? Remember, you're, you're, you, you, it's not just you. We're going to see he's going to bring hundreds of people with him in a battle that on paper they don't stand a chance of winning. Not a chance. So how, what would you do? Well, I can tell you what most of us do. I, 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 <laughs> I think most of us have a help grid. Do you have a help grid? You're like, I don't know if I do or not. You will in a few minutes know whether you do or not. Most of us have a help grid, and typically we think, does this person deserve my help? That's sort of, that's sort of the way we, we think. Or, or another one is, is there any risk to me in helping them? You know, this is one of my big critiques on, on our culture right now. You know, some person living in their $30 million mansion in Beverly Hills is critiquing people on the other side of the country saying, well, you should do something about this. That's really hard. <laughs> There's no risk there. There's no risk there. So we wonder, is there any risk to ourselves? Uh, also, probably in our lives, we think, is there any inconvenience to me? See, so you get a lot of people who want to be part of a, a movement or part of an opinion, but they don't want to do anything about it. They're just like, oh, I'm, I'm on board with that. What are you doing about that? Well, you know, I'm on board. <laughs> the reality here is 
you could really make a strong case that Lot does not deserve the help. And the risk to take an army out, a small army out against these five superpower kings on paper is the stupidest decision you could ever make in your life. And even if you do get him out, and you know you're not going to just try and get him out, you're going to try and get all the people that are with him and all his goods and stuff like that. What about the risk of future attacks? Every day for the rest of your life, you're going to be looking over your shoulder. Are these guys coming back for me? No matter how you cut it, this situation is super, super messy. So how do, how do we know, or how do you and I know, when God would want us to help? And when God would want us to back off and let the Holy Spirit do His work? Well, I've often looked at it this way, and probably because the advantage of, of studying the Scriptures, that when it's clear that someone is in repetitive sin, we, we need tough love for those who are truly repentant. You say, how do you know if someone's truly repentant? Well, they're sorrowful. They have changed their mind about their behavior, and they're actually working very hard to change their behavior. Not like, sorry, you know, that, that's not repentance. Even admitting it is not repentance. There must be a change of mind, of heart, and of action. And so here's the thing. If our help is really helping what God is doing in their life, then our help is good. But if our help is actually helping them to keep on sinning, then we're actually in God's way. I don't know if that's any harder than it is for a parent. So let me say that again. If our help helps what God is doing in their lives, then it is good. If our help helps them to continue in their sin, then we are actually in God's way. And we need to get out of the way. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. We actually have a whole message on our website on verses 8 through 11, which if you just go under the messages and under the pick a scripture and look for 2 Corinthians 7, uh, 8 through 11, says this, verse 10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance. So if you're really sorry in the Lord, it will produce sorrow, godly sorrow, he calls it. It will produce a change of mind, and a change of behavior leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the, sorry, the sorrow of the world, sometimes it's called worldly grief, produces death. You know, I've, over the years I've met with a lot of people who've been, you know, disciplined for something at work or something like that, or they lost their job, and, and, and they're like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I kept coming in late, or I... I didn't do what I was supposed to do or whatever. And, and it's like, well, are you really sorry for what you did or are you just sorry that you lost your job? 
I mean, which is it? Let's go back to verse 14. We'll continue. Now, when Abram heard that his brother, we might call it, say, kinsman, family member, um, and Abraham feels responsible for him. It's his brother's son. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. So let's just stop right there. That's 318 grown men. How many families does that represent in their society? Most of them would be married. Many, if not most, would have large families of kids. So maybe this, is, this decision is going to affect possibly 1,000 people against four superpower armies. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. You might want to circle that word pursuit. He went in pursuit. Dan being a region of the tribe of Dan. Side note, that the tribe of Dan came later. Side note, God seems to, in that verse, to put his stamp of approval of being trained for self-defense. doesn't say like, oh, I can't believe he disobeyed me and trained these guys. So, so Abraham was make sure, making sure that his people were trained for self-defense. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night. So it's a surprise attack by a small army at night in the power of the Lord. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So they're actually chasing these larger, more powerful armies. Reminds me of of what Pastor John was teaching us about Gideon, about how he had this small army and he's going after this bigger army. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, reminds me of Jonathan who was who was going to fight the Philistines, and people were like, what are you kidding me? There's not near enough of us. And, and Jonathan said this, 1 Samuel 14, 6, he said, nothing restrains the Lord. Some verses say nothing hinders the Lord from saving by many or by few. I find that such an encouraging verse, that the church does not need a lot of people to do God's work in God's world. God can save by many, or he can save by few. It's the story of Dwight L. Moody. You know, somebody said you know, to him, you know, the world has yet to see what happens when one guy is fully sold out for God, and Moody said, I want to be that guy. And he became the great evangelist. And perhaps, and I believe it is so, that Abraham knew that this battle was going to be the Lord's not his. Now, there's a weird kind of thing going on right here. We have these powerful kings that we had to painfully read through their names twice, but notice how they have faded into the distance. All our eyes are on Abram right now. Why? Because, Christian, God's eyes are firmly fixed on his children. Maybe those of us who feel like we are nothing in the world's eyes should think about that. 
it's interesting that scholars have trouble finding some of the names of these kings, and, and what's really interesting is that nobody would know anything about these kings except for Abraham. Nobody would know the name of King Herod except for his hatred for a little baby that became the poor carpenter from Nazareth and the savior of the world. Nobody would know about his descendant, the other King Herod, because he didn't care if Jesus died on the cross. Nobody would know who Joseph and Mary were if it wasn't for their little baby boy. Nobody would know who Pontius Pilate is if it wasn't for the cross. And the Scripture teaches that heaven knows your name, Christian, because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. So for a follower of Jesus, God's eyes are on you. God's eyes are on your family. God's eyes are on your prayer group. God's eyes are on how you welcome people to church. God's eyes are on your own personal studying of his word and talking to him as you study it. God's eyes, if you're a children's teacher, is, is on you as you prepare your lesson week after week after week, knowing those little brats, I mean those wonderful little kids, might only catch how kind you are to them. And the reason you were able to be kind was because you were prepared. God's eyes are on your community group and the, and the struggles that various people in the group are going through. Ultimately, friend, you matter to God. You matter to your heavenly Father. No matter what this world says. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And even like some of us, if it's getting less than it used to be, that doesn't change the way he feels about us. Verse 16, so he brought back, Abram brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So here we see Abraham's love for Lot and his desire to help his wayward nephew. I wonder, and I think a lot of this comes from my own personal experiences and the personal experiences of so many of you. I don't think you guys know how much I learn from you in just talking with you and watching you. I wonder how much Abraham's failure in Egypt really changed him. No, to, no doubt about it, Lot was very foolish going to live near Sodom. No doubt about it, Lot was very foolish then going to live in Sodom, and probably I find it hard to believe Abram didn't know that. But Abraham was very foolish before that to go down to Egypt when the famine happened instead of trusting God. 
let's be honest, friend. You have been very foolish at times. I have been very, very foolish at times. And one of the evidences of grace in your life is your grace and mercy towards those who have been foolish. Because when you have been shown grace and mercy, you tend to be more of a person who extends grace and mercy. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed Abel and God asked him, hey, where is he? Now God knew the answer. And this was, the, this was Cain's answer. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for my brother? Answer, yes. Yes, that is the answer. We are responsible for one another. Once again, certainly you could make the case that Lot did not deserve to be saved. This situation was of his own doing. And the mission that Abraham went on to save Lot was very, very dangerous. Very good chance that he could lose his life. Very good chance that a lot of those women that were, and children that were left behind would, would be left widows and fatherless. Very interesting, though, that Abraham has this decent-sized army, 300-plus men, trained, and yet he didn't use his army. We know he was also very wealthy. He didn't use his wealth. He didn't use his power to try and win the land that God had promised to him. He didn't do that. Why? Because at this moment in his life, he is trusting the Lord Abraham, the man the Scripture calls the friend of God, risked his life for another. Certainly a great example to all of us, but even a greater picture. Let's try and focus in our final moments. In this story, I know we read it, and we would like to think, oh, I would like to be like Abraham. There's only one huge, glaring problem. We are not Abraham in this story. We are all Lot. And as Lot moved far from Abraham, we have all moved far away from God. That famous verse, Romans 3.23, says, For all, that would be all. Some of you got that, some of you didn't. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, some people read that and they hear the first part and they go, all have sinned. And they go, well, yes, I know I've sinned. Other people get incredibly insulted. And they're like, I'm not a sinner. I don't know what that is. But look at the second half and fall short of the glory of God. I don't think any of us think we measure up to the glory of God. Just go outside, look up in the sky tonight, look in the stars and think, could I do that? No, I probably couldn't. <laughs> I'm falling short of the glory of God. Like Lot, we have all moved away from the glory of God to do our own thing. And like Lot, we, it puts us in a position of being unable to save ourselves, captured, if you will, by the world. Now we fast forward. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years ago. You know, Jesus could have stayed in heaven. 
where it was safe, where it was comfortable, where there was, didn't cost him anything really, did it, to stay there and watch? He could have stayed there with his army of angels, just watching Lot slowly self-destruct, watching you and me fall short of the glory of God. But instead, the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul tells us that he took on the form of a servant. Jesus came down from heaven to earth, and he risked his life on a mission to pursue you and to pursue me. He risked his life on a mission to rescue you and to rescue me. As it says in Matthew 1, he came to save his people from his sins. Of course, the question is, are you one of his people? How does that happen? You just put your trust in him. You repent. You repent and believe. Jesus said, you change your mind about God. You tell him you're sorry for your sins. You ask him to help you to change your behavior. And you do the steps you need to do to save your behavior. And then you believe, you put your trust in Jesus. Abraham put his army at risk for one man lot. But God the Father put his one and only son at risk for many people, including you and me. Now Abraham and his army rescued Lot only because God rescued Abraham and his army. (laughs) But on the cross, God did not rescue Jesus. On the cross, God the Father let Jesus die on the cross in your place for your sins and for my sins as well. Abraham fought. But when the corrupt religious leaders and Romans and Abraham fought with his army and when the corrupt religious leaders and Romans came for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus tell his apostles? Put away your swords. When Jesus had the chance to call down his army of angels to save him, he did not. He went to the cross. On the cross, Jesus suffered great pain and separation from God. So all who would turn to God and put their trust in Jesus would never have that experience. And like Jesus, they too would rise from the dead. You see, what made Jesus the perfect sacrifice was because he never fell short of the glory of God. And for all who put their trust in him, he gives us his righteousness, if you will. He takes our sin and he gives us his glory. His perfect righteousness is credited to our account. And like Lot was brought back by Abraham, all who put their trust in Jesus will be brought back to God by Jesus. And yes, the way they exist right now, Abraham and Lot, the way you and I exist right now, the future is very much unknown, but we can still have great confidence knowing that our sin and our failures have been forgiven 
and great confidence in knowing that we have been rescued. Well, let's stand and pray.